Hello and welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. We hope you're enjoying your Labor Day weekend and getting some well-deserved rest and relaxation. Today's show is a replay of our August 31st webinar detailing the first year of the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development, or DCED for short. The DCED is an ongoing community investment initiative comprised of the Real Estate Council Community Investors, Dallas College, and Lyft Fund, and funded by the J.P. Morgan Chase Partnerships for Raising Opportunity in Neighborhoods program. It focuses on providing affordable housing, jobs, career skills training, wealth creation opportunities, and additional real estate development within three Dallas neighborhoods that are considered vulnerable to rapid economic transition, the Forest District, the Bottom, and West Dallas Census Tract 205. Our webinar covered key takeaways, actionable items, and useful feedback from the DCED's first year, as detailed in our white paper entitled Equitable Development in Southern Dallas, a summary and analysis of the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development, Year One, which we have made available in the show notes and blog page for this podcast. The discussion was moderated by Felicia Pearson, Senior Director of Community Investment for Trek Community Investors, and consisted of a panel made up of Cullum Clark, who is director of the George W. Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative and principal author of the white paper, as well as Shanika Frazier, the community outreach manager for the Bill J. Priest Small Business Innovation Center within Dallas College, Isaac Elizondo, Lift Fund's vice president of lending for the North Texas and Oklahoma regions, and Becky Post, senior community development advisor for St. Phillips School and Community Center, which is one of the community organizations that is partnering with this collaborative on the DCED. Make sure to subscribe to TrackCast to get the latest episodes right to your mobile device and follow us on social media for the latest from around the Real Estate Council. You can also watch the webinar over on our YouTube channel. We've put links for everything in the show notes, so go check that out. Now, here's our look back at the first year of the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development right here on TrackCast. Welcome, everyone. I'm Felicia Pearson, the Senior Director of Community Investment at Trek Community Investors. We want to thank you all for joining us today to discuss equitable development in Dallas, year one. If you will, please turn off your videos and remain on mute. And if you have any questions, please, please put your questions in the chat for the Q&A session later in the program. Now, to begin today's program, and the reason why we're fortunate to be here today, I'd like to introduce Michelle Thomas from J.P. Morgan Chase. Michelle? Thank you so very much. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Michelle Thomas, Vice President of Global Philanthropy at J.P. Morgan Chase, Texas Region. At J.P. Morgan Chase, we understand that economic opportunity is deeply rooted and the conditions of our neighborhoods, yet we know also well that many neighborhoods, including the Forest District, the Bottom, and West Dallas Census Tract 205, face persistent challenges, including poverty, blight, and disinvestment. Residents in these neighborhoods don't have the same access to affordable housing, small business capital, and job training as their counterparts in many other areas of the city. And this is a reality. We know so well that too many places and too many people face across our country, and it's just not okay. 
And so at J.P. Morgan Chase, we are committed to and believe it is our corporate responsibility to help the communities we serve. So in 2016, we launched the Pro Neighborhoods Competition that stands for Partnerships for Raising Opportunity in Neighborhoods. We understand that meaningful change can come about when government and business and community come together. By making a meaningful investment right here in our very own backyard, we can work together to build our communities. And so we want to help ensure that our residents and families and children thrive and that they have access to housing and jobs. After conducting a rigorous, intense, and nationwide competition, in 2019, Trek Community Investors was awarded a $6 million investment to create and fund the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development to address fundamental challenges in these three targeted neighborhoods. This $6 million commitment is the largest single investment ever awarded to, to Trek Community Investments. And it really truly speaks to J.P. Morgan Chase's commitment right here in our own backyard. We could not be more proud of our partners and the services that they are providing as a collaborative. Together, we are developing locally driven solutions to create inclusive growth so that the Forest District, the Bottom and West Dallas Census Tracts 205 are no longer left behind. So now I'll just turn it back over to my good friend, Felicia, to tell you more about Trek Community Investors and the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development. Thank you, Michelle. And uh, before we go forward, if you could, if everyone uh, could turn off their videos and remain on mute, uh, we'd really appreciate that. So again, Michelle, we thank you and JP Morgan Chase for the major investment and commitment to our community. As the lead organization of the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development, or DCED, Trek Community Investors has been involved in community and economic development in Dallas for over 25 years. Trek Community Investors was created in 2020, the result of the merger of Trek Community Fund, a Department of Treasury Certified Development Financial Institution, or CDFI, and Trek Foundation, the Real Estate Council's philanthropic arm. Our organization believes in the holistic approach to neighborhood revitalization. That includes access to capital and strategic partnerships, both public and private. Our work is most impactful when we collaborate with neighborhood anchor institutions, municipalities, and members of the Real Estate Council. So from a laundromat to a new neighborhood market, a local gathering and makerspace, and the transformation of an empty lot to a food park and community space, which turned out to be a month long celebration of small neighborhood vendors. Our impact is amplified through collaboration. So a quick background on how DCD came to be. So in 2018, Trek Community Investors received a $400,000 grant from JP Morgan Chase. Thank you, Michelle to develop an equitable development plan in three neighborhoods, the Bottom, the Forest District, and West Dallas Census Tract 205. These neighborhoods were chosen 
because we saw that these areas were at the highest risk of resident displacement or gentrification. The plan was created based on what the residents and stakeholders in these neighborhoods told us was important. That included affordable housing, because they didn't want to be pushed out of their neighborhoods that they had lived and invested in for decades. They also told us they wanted support and funding for small businesses so that their neighborhoods had services and created jobs for local residents. They also wanted workforce development training to immediately benefit from the local construction either happening or surrounding their neighborhoods and also companies that were relocating or being created here in the city of Dallas. That is what we heard. But they also told us they didn't want just another plan. They wanted action. And as a result of the $6 million investment from JP Morgan Chase, DCD, a three-year program was created to address these challenges in each of the three neighborhoods. DCED is designed to work as a group to meet multiple challenges. It is the power of collaboration. So who are the members of DCED and what are our roles? Trek Community Investors, we focus on all things real estate, including affordable housing development, access to capital, real estate project management, and community leadership development through our real estate educational programs. Dallas College, our neighbor right down the street from many of these communities, will provide small business services, or they are providing small business services and also workforce training. Lift Fund, another CDFI, will provide or is providing small business lending through an innovative loan program that you'll hear about later, as well as technical assistance for new and existing entrepreneurs. Now, in addition to DCED, we also want to recognize the neighborhood organizations that are critical to the success of DCED. Builders of Hope in West Dallas Census Tract 205, Golden Seeds in the bottom, and in the Forest District, Cornerstone Baptist Church, Forest Ford, and St. Philip's School and Community Center. So I will tell you over this last year and a half, through a global pandemic, protests for justice, from in-person meetings to Zoom calls, DCED has been active and has played, and, or, and we're playing the cards that we've been dealt. DCED is a collaborative creative to meet some of the pressing needs of these three communities. And so to talk about our work under DCED and to talk about equitable develop, development in Southern Dallas year one, I'd like to introduce you to the author of this insightful white paper, Cullen Clark, director of the George W. Bush Institute. Welcome, Cullen. Thank you, Felicia. It's good to see you and uh, good to see a lot of friends out here participating today. Um, so uh, just a very, very quick background, what brings me to, uh, to this, this session right now. Uh, as part of the J.P. Morgan uh, grant to create the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development, or DCED, um, Part of the grant involves having a local evaluation. So a local evaluator who uh, basically over the course of three years uh, writes a series of three uh, white, white papers, reports, uh, basically summarizing um, uh, 
essentially how the intervention, how the project has, has worked out, what, what in effect the, uh, uh, the collaborative has done, its results, and crucially, uh, takeaways. So let me say, so my, my role is to be the local evaluator. Uh, so that means I've now written the first of three white papers with a lot of help from a lot of people, by the way. Uh, so many thanks to people in all of the partner organizations in DCED. Um, so uh, it's the first of three papers, and I think it was in the invitation to this event, and I believe that uh, um, my friends from uh, Trek uh, Community Investors are putting it in the chat as well, so you can, you can go to our report. Um, uh, what I'm going to do today is give you the main uh, points from the report, but here's the important point I want to make, first of all. Uh, this is the first of three. Uh, this is, in a sense, a progress report uh, on the early stages of this project. And there will be more over the next couple of years as we will, as the program unfolds. Let me say one thing, a couple of things that got me really excited about working on this. And I have been really honored to be a part of this, of this uh, really exciting project. Uh, one is it's a really visionary undertaking. Uh, JP Morgan Chase's Pro Neighborhoods Initiative is unprecedented. It's, a, it's an absolutely remarkable engagement by one of America's premier uh, companies, premier financial institutions. Uh, in really trying to um, get down at the level of the ground in very specific places and prove out, try out and prove out concepts for how we can create equitable development in our, in our cities. It's a visionary thing. And the, uh, the DCED in particular, I think is a very ambitious, uh, exciting and innovative uh, effort to apply a lot of the, the cutting edge ideas that are out there and how to create equitable development with JP Morgan's grant in the actual setting of three challenged Dallas cities. So it's an exciting thing and I'm really honored to be uh, a part of it. Uh, I think a, uh, some indication of just how significant this effort is, is the great group that's joined today. Um, uh, I think I would, uh, I'd, I'd kind of like to make the, to, to note that um, in a sense, the world is watching, not just DCED, but the pro-neighborhoods, the whole pro-neighborhoods initiative, all of these initiatives. One thing that gets me excited about being involved is that, um, I think that J.P. Morgan Chase and by extension, everyone involved wants to understand the takeaways. What do we learn from this whole, this whole uh, exercise? Because these are three relatively small neighborhoods uh, with a big ambitious plan in them. And the question is, what can the rest of America take away? What can, what can cities all over the world take away? And that was, I think, one thing that makes it so exciting. It is an honor also to be joined by so many people. I see in the uh, list of participants, we're joined by um, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson, members of the Dallas City Council, and an enormous amount of uh, talented people who have been involved in community development and affordable housing in our city. So I feel a little bit uh, humble trying to say anything to, to this uh, very knowledgeable group. But here we go. So basics on the, um, on the program really fast uh, to follow up on what Felicia said. <clears throat> the DCED is a complex and ambitious undertaking. Basically, it involves three focused neighborhoods that are not contiguous. They could, could have done a single one within the JP Morgan grant, so that's ambitious. It's three different domains, as we understand it, in the, as we define them in the, in the white paper, affordable housing, small business lending, and capacity and skills building. So three different domains times three neighborhoods, four partner organizations, also working with five neighborhood specific community organizations. So really great community organizations that have been working for a long time in these individual neighborhoods. That makes eight partner organizations and there are others who've gotten involved along the way. So it's a complex undertaking. Let me say a little something about the overall challenge. 
Southern Dallas, I, looking at who's participating today, I, I think there's not much I can't, I can tell any of you all that you don't already know, but just so we're all on the same page. Um, we describe in the report that the, the Dallas area is essentially on a trend, and I'm sorry to say it, but it's the truth, on a trend towards being increasingly a kind of donut-shaped geography, economic geography, uh, in, in the sense that the metropolitan area is booming in many respects, but there is a core area in this, mostly the southern part of this core city of Dallas with certain, certain areas also north of I-35, north of the Trinity River, uh, which are really struggling. Uh, we all know that to be the case. Southern Dallas, as we define it in the, in the report, which, which we define nine city council districts, could have defined it a lot of ways, represents um, about 64% of the population of our city, but about 10% of the assessed property value. The area, the physical area we're talking about is bigger than the size of it, the, the, the whole city of Atlanta. If we, it, it, it contains roughly 800,000 people. If we just took the black and Hispanic population uh, alone, that's more than 625,000 people. That alone, in just in the area we're talking about in Southern Dallas is bigger than the entire population of the cities of Washington, Boston, or Seattle. So we're talking about a big area and it is an area of profound historic segregation, discrimination, and underinvestment. I've written about this elsewhere and a little bit in the report, and I'm sorry there's not time to go through it today, but a lot of you all know the, the, the sad story of segregation going back in official terms to 1916, and of course long before that in all kinds of other, other um, ways. Um, and, it's an, and it's an area that has been experienced profound underinvestment for a long time, underinvestment in infrastructure, underinvestment in basic amenities, um, and well, I could easily go on. It's also an area that has seen extraordinarily little new housing development, little new commercial real estate development, little business creation. And in fact, it's an area, if we take the entirety of it, that has actually seen a net uh, decline in the number of jobs, a pretty considerable, more than 10% decline in the number of jobs over this century so far, even though the population has gone somewhat upwards. Uh, so, so all of Southern Dallas is an area in need of these kinds of interventions. Now, a little something about our, our three focused neighborhoods in the DCED. Some basics, we're talking about 7,000 residents roughly in these three neighborhoods. A majority are Black, a significant minority are Hispanic. There are commonalities across th these three neighborhoods. One commonality is that they all are blessed with very strong, longstanding neighborhood community organizations, which are in fact involved in this intervention. That cannot be said to the same degree of a lot of other areas in Southern Dallas. It's also the case that these neighborhoods benefit from and could potentially benefit a lot more from some really strong local anchor institutions beyond the immediate community organizations. For example, DISD schools, for example, um, uh, other, other kind of sub substantial public sector um, assets. Um, on the other hand, I think one reason all, the, all three of these neighborhoods were picked is that they also are all uh, perceived to be, and I think they are, at greater than average vulnerability to rapid change and displacement by virtue of being relatively close to downtown and in some cases very close to areas experiencing very, very rapid uh, change uh, with, in some cases, some, some significant amount of uh, displacement. Um, I would argue that this creates both unusual strengths and unusual challenges. It, it is uh, a strength to have these neighborhood community organizations, to have a relatively rich endowment of local anchor institutions immediately nearby. In some sense, I would argue that sets these neighborhoods up for greater odds of success with these interventions 
than a lot of other peer neighborhoods elsewhere in our city would have. There are some important uh, trends in each of them that to some degree make each of these neighborhoods a little different than each other. The West Dallas uh, area is almost surely of these three areas, the one that has the greatest likelihood of rapid change and displacement in the near term by virtue of its very close proximity to areas on all sides that are changing very fast. The forest district actually is the most, the highest educational attainment levels on average, the highest income levels uh, in the of the three neighborhoods, which certainly creates opportunities. It also is kind of the natural path of development moving southwards from the Cedars. Uh, people, we've had debates among our group here, people involved, but you could argue that the Cedars is at the moment one of the premier examples in Dallas of a neighborhood that has a shot at being a mixed income, mixed um, ethnicity uh, community with some degree of sustainability. So in theory, that development model just might last and could spread into the, into the forest district. Uh, the bottom is, is probably the most likely of the three neighborhoods to face continued underinvestment uh, by virtue of being a little bit further from areas of uh, major change right now, but nonetheless, interesting commonalities. Now, let me say a little bit about the program uh, that the DCED is undertaking. I think the important thing to say um, is that the program is rooted in a very clear theory of change, a theory of what happens when you, or what can happen when you carry out an intervention like the DCE is, is DCED is doing. And the, the core idea here is that if you combine capital coming into a neighborhood with technical assistance to actually, you know, knowledgeable people helping to make things happen, plus capacity building among local residents and organizations within the neighborhood, totally focused on the neighborhood, that that combination can not just produce a handful of additional housing units, for example, but it can produce sustained improvement, a positive flywheel effect where good things start to happen and keep happening after the intervention has kind of run its course. So for example, um, I think it is part, I, we argue in the white paper, and I think this is, is, is uh, well-founded here, uh, that uh, there is a, a thesis behind the affordable housing work in the program, uh, that not only can this program lead to a, a certain number of new units, but it can additionally spark much greater addition of new housing units in these neighborhoods and, and, and in surrounding areas uh, through multiple mechanisms, through leveraging additional capital from the private sector, nonprofit sector, public sector, through building capacity of local organizations to scale up as real estate developers in their own right, uh, to, to by creating a positive momentum in the neighborhood to stimulate additional renovation activity by residents and people already, already there on the basis that the neighbor, if the neighborhood is improving, it essentially strengthens the incentive uh, to, to believe in the future of the neighborhood and to invest and attracting new residents. Um, uh, who also would see positive momentum, and that in turn would create demand for new housing. I think there's, there's a further uh, theory of change here, which is that with the combination of new capital coming in, but this whole collection of activities that the DCED is doing, uh, that these neighborhoods have a real shot at evolving into mixed income communities with a degree of, of sustainability and, and st stability to that. That's been a hard thing to achieve in American cities, but the theory is that it can be done, at least to some degree, and that if these neighborhoods do evolve into mixed-in communities, that that will lead to improved quality of life for residents, more amenities, uh, that it will, it will result, it will prevent large-scale displacement and improve opportunity and economic mobility for the people who live there. Similarly, I think with the small business lending uh, piece, there is a theory that in effect, uh, lending plus technical assistance plus local uh, capacity building 
can in fact lead to an increase in the number of successful businesses operating uh, locally in the immediate area. And also there is the theory that, that by increasing organizational capacity, increasing skills, increasing social capital, interconnectedness, trust, et cetera, in the neighborhoods that you can in effect create an improved ability of the neighborhoods to address their own challenges in the future, to, to uh, stick up for themselves effectively uh, in public policy discussions and to, in general to get things done in a sustained way. Um, the paper really goes into detail on the specific quantitative objectives. J.P. Morgan Chase did require a number of quantitative objectives uh, to their great credit, and DCED has them. Um, I'll just say a couple because there's not really time to say a lot about it. Uh, but for example, the program aims to build 200 housing units. It uh, aims to create one or potentially multiple community land trusts, which would create a wealth building opportunity for people, uh, residents in the neighborhood. It aims to make at least 26 small business loans and to engage more than 1,500 residents uh, in um, various programs and discussions and activities that are going on. To give you a sense of the scale of this, 200 housing units in, a, in neighborhoods that collectively have 7,000 residents is a big undertaking. Um, if you think of it as a, a minimum housing unit as being, uh, uh, other people can correct me in this group, but certainly not less than $200,000 cost to deliver, uh, well, that would take $40 million. That's a huge undertaking. It undoubtedly requires very considerable additional um, capital uh, and, and, and um, getting a lot more people involved in all this. Uh, similarly, 1,500 residents getting involved. Well, that's, that's roughly uh, a third almost of all of the adult residents uh, in the neighborhoods. Um, the uh, programs that the, uh, the, the intervention has made some pretty specific choices. So for example, how to do affordable housing. The main mechanism is mostly forgivable loans towards housing development. That's a, that's a model. It's arguably, uh, I think, a very well thought through one. On the small business side, the idea, uh, there's a lot of discussion out there in the impact investing world about how should capital flows into small businesses in disadvantaged neighborhoods and other such places uh, work. And uh, some will say you can kind of try to make a normal market return. Others would say, essentially, you shouldn't even attempt, attempt to get all your money back. This program is kind of in the middle. The goal is basically to, for the, to essentially make loans that will recover capital after credit losses. So that's a, taking a, a stand on how to do it. Uh, the capacity building programs, there are some that have already existed. That are The idea is really to invite people in the neighborhood in, in a very proactive way. Others that are being brought into being for this initiative. But I think exciting project pro programs, Dallas College, creating the Small Business and Corporate Growth Lab at the Bill J. Priest Center uh, near downtown, trying to essentially create uh, space, training, coaching, a whole ecosystem that can help small businesses to get off the ground. Uh, similarly, Trex programs, Real Estate 101 and the Real Estate Boot Camp, teaching people to be real estate professionals, I think is a very inspired idea. So let me just say the paper goes into detail about what's all has happened so far. And I'm just going to conclude by a handful of conclusions and a handful of what I would call early takeaways. The conclusions. Um, uh, my paper argues that um, the DCED does represent a compelling diagnosis of the challenges to equitable development in these three neighborhoods and more generally in places like Southern Dallas. It offers a plausible theory of change. And I think it offers a sound, innovative plan for going after it. Uh, the idea of combining capital, technical assistance, and capacity building is, I think, in some sense, kind of at the forefront of contemporary thinking about how to, how to spark equitable development in cities. And that's exciting. At the same time, it's a really ambitious plan. 
And I think that uh, that the attempt to go after all of this ambitious thing at once, uh, well, it created some challenges in the first year. Um, the, um, the initiative did in general have a slower start than planned in its first year. Now that I think was in significant part to, due to COVID, which caused dramatic slowdowns, though not total stoppage to essentially all the programs uh, in the DCED. However, uh, but I would say one additional point, and that is I think it wasn't just COVID, I think it's the sheer complexity of what DCED is trying to achieve, uh, that there are certainly lessons along the way that we described in the paper, not time to really describe them all now. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think that the uh, DCED partners have shown a, a really impressive ability to adapt quickly to virtual formats for a lot of the things that they were trying to, uh, to do. Uh, I think that they have uh, all these organizations have been stretched and have successfully grown in their ability to execute something that has a lot of execution complexity involved in it. Um, one thing we do uh, argue is that in general, um, both the, the goal of bringing a lot of affordable housing into being and the goal of creating a community land trust or more than one, I think it's probably fair to say that the organizations involved have learned a lot about the complexities involved in that. And I think the effort will have to be kind of stepped up to really sort of de deliver in that um, in those areas because we're, we're all learning how complex it is. Uh, so near, yes, nearing an end here. Um, the, um, I, I think that, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So the program clearly to achieve its goals will, will require significant additional capital. Um, I also suggest in the paper that I think the, that all of these interventions would benefit from closer engagement with a number of anchor institutions nearby, particularly in the educational uh, world. Some of those are very strong institutions right there in the neighborhoods. Uh, let me suggest some early takeaways from this, uh, this whole effort. Um, uh, number one, COVID-19 wasn't just an impediment to getting things done. It's been a giant, uh, provided a giant revelation into the, into the challenges in neighborhoods like this uh, and the challenge of executing change, COVID or no COVID. It's just a giant magnifying glass. And what it shows us is in many cases pretty painful and difficult. Among other things, it's brought to light a trim, the, the, the really great significance, tremendous significance of the digital divide. When these programs have in many cases, particularly the capacity building and skills building programs have gone to online, uh, I think the uh, DCED partners quickly come to understand just how real this digital divide is and the difficulty a lot of residents have of accessing online resources and connecting with online programs. The program certainly illustrates the general challenges in these kinds of interventions. Affordable housing, I don't have to tell the people in this group, is extraordinarily difficult to create. There are so many legal obstacles. The capital stack to bring the financing together is typically complex. Uh, I don't think that we've completely solved that in these particular instances just yet, although the efforts are certainly well underway to get, to get there. Uh, trying to create a mixed income community is especially complex because so often, as we all know, neighborhoods, if they're transitioning or either transitioning from all relatively low to moderate income to affluent or from all affluent to all relatively low to moderate income and finding some kind of middle ground of true mixed income in a sustainable fashion is just plain hard. I think it has happened in some places, but uh, a hard thing to do. And I think we've also uh, learned that the, the, the community land trusts are a really powerful uh, mechanism, but quite complex to bring, it, bring into being. And one specific recommendation we make in the white paper is to consider trying to create one community land trust that's built to scale for these neighborhoods that can then scale on to provide kind of technical services to efforts like this to build wealth and housing uh, all over our city. 
the fact that Dallas doesn't have one at all is a really clear uh, kind of uh, uh, sort of it's a real hole in our in our efforts to create more equitable development relative to most other big cities, even medium-sized cities. On the small business side, I think we're definitely one important takeaway is there really isn't a commonly accepted theory of how external intervention even can increase the pace or the success of business startup activity. We really don't know how to do that. So the best we can do is go out and try and make these loans. Uh, but I think that uh, you know again, it's going to take some time to figure out what what kind of loans even can make a difference? How much difference can technical assistance make? On the capacity building side, I think all of us in this call know uh, that successful professionals of all kinds develop their skills, their capacities, their contacts over many, many years. Again, it's not real obvious how external inter intervention can in effect come into a neighborhood and in a short period of time, uh, help to create organizations that can do a lot of things they didn't already know how to do. This is an ambitious undertaking. I think this effort also shows the vital role of community organizations with deep roots in the neighborhood. I make a strong statement in the white paper, which is that without the five community organizations deeply involved, once COVID hit, there is no way the DCED could have really gotten off the ground to the extent that it has. Uh, and finally, the crucial importance of building trust in the community. Because I think, again, we all know that these neighborhoods and basically lower income neighborhoods all over our country and all over the world have every reason in the world not to trust political authorities or outside interveners of whatever kind. And yet, if they don't trust them, the response can be essentially the committee going into kind of a, um, a hunkering down into a defensive crouch, uh, and that results in stagnation. To produce positive change, we have to have that trust. And I think the DCED is very much built on, around the concept that trust must be earned and built in the community. And that's a really uh, smart part of the overall intervention. So in conclusion, the DCED is off to a good start, particularly in view of COVID and the other challenges it has faced. And the great test ahead is in 2000, rest of 2001, 2022, does it ramp up, increase its ability to address these various uh, challenges? Uh, I think that, you know, the early evidence is it very much is built to do that, but uh, we'll be reporting back in subsequent white papers. And on that note, uh, Felicia, back to you. Thank you, Cullum. And I, we all appreciate you being a part of DCED. Uh, we really encourage everyone uh, to read the white paper. Uh, and if you have any feedback, we'd love to reach out to us here uh, at, uh, at Trek Community Investors. And so now let's hear from uh, a trusted community partner and some members of DCED. And we, we'll, we'll talk about their experiences working uh, as, as a part of the collaborative or working with the collaborative. Uh, we have Becky Medol from St. Philip's School and Community Center. We have Isaac Elizondo from Lift Fund, again, a CDFI. And we have Shanika Frazier from Dallas College. So welcome uh, to all of you. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion. So I'd like to open it up with a few questions. Um, and this is a question for all of you. Uh, I'd like you to, to describe your organization and, and, and exactly what do you do at your organizations? Shanika? Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> um, my name is Shanika Frazier, I'm with Dallas College. And of course, Dallas College is the leader in education uh, for community college in Dallas County. Uh, my role is community outreach manager and I'm the connector 
Uh, I am the one-stop shop to get all of your questions answered and connect you with the right people so you can receive all these great resources uh, that Dallas College has to offer, specifically with small business support opportunities and workforce training. Great. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Isaac Elizondo with Lift Fund. Uh, we are a uh, Lift Fund is a nonprofit organization, a uh, CDFI that helps startups and small businesses that cannot seek um, uh, financing through, uh, through traditional means. Um, and so uh, uh, we do small loans, micro loans from 500 to 250,000, uh, not only providing funding, but we also assist in business education as well. I'm Becky Post. I'm here with St. Philip's School and Community Center, um, and it's such an honor to be representing the fantastic community organizations that are part of this, including our friends Cornerstone and Forest Ward in the Forest District. Um, St. Philip's has been located in South Dallas for 75 years. We're a nonprofit whose mission is to serve low and moderate income families through education and community services and equitable community development which for us includes the collaborative community planning, which undergirds the effort, um, economic development, affordable housing, and then community health and wellness. Thanks to Becky, Becky Post. Thanks for that correction. So uh, another question for all of you, and let's start with Becky first. So why did you uh, choose to participate or why does St. Philip's choose to participate in the planning as well as with DCED? Uh, and, and talk about what were some of the expected benefits. Sure. Um, and in the Forest District today, market-driven development surrounds the neighborhood and is rapidly expanding. And it was recently identified by the city of Dallas as one of the top eight neighborhoods most vulnerable to rapid transition um, and poised for growth. And so there's this opportunity to ensure community ownership and opportunities for you know, longtime residents to not only drive the neighborhood's future, but also benefit from development that occurs. And for us, the major benefits of participating um, have been, number one, the, the manpower and funding to do the actual equitable development planning itself. So this was deputizing neighbors to go door to door. This was numerous community meetings. Um, so we have now our roadmap and our community directive. Um, and then I think the second piece that has been huge for us is the capacity building. So the Real Estate 101, the boot camps um, have really helped our nonprofit and then members of our community to understand the development process and then how we might be more effective in it. Okay. Shanika, why did you decide to be a part of DCED? We know your relationship with these communities, but you could have been working in a different capacity. Why DCED? Well, DCED is very important to me. It's personal for me. I'm from Oak Cliff, proud native of Oak Cliff. The bottom is home. Uh, my relatives are from South Dallas, had small businesses in, small uh, in South Dallas that I grew up with, and West Dallas is where my father's side of the family. So I spent my summers there. So for me, it was very personal. This has never been done before where there was an intentional purpose, kind of like what Becky said, a roadmap, the the hard work had been done in the beginning to get that information and allow those uh, community members to have a voice at the table, at the actual table of influence. And so when I heard about the program, the DSET program, I thought to myself, now this has grabbed my attention uh, only because these community members are important to me. These organizations are important to me. They're part of my childhood. They had built 
uh, relationships with them before I even started with Dallas College. So to know that we are being uh, intentional and purposeful with this, this opportunity to take care of them the way they need to be taken care of and give them access to resources that a lot of times I was 10 minutes from Bill J. Freeze, never knew about small business opportunities right down the street. And so I felt as though I could be that voice and kind of push the needle and kind of say, okay, hello, this is what is available to you and customize that, uh, that opportunity to those neighborhoods. So for me, it's very personal, so. Okay, Isaac, same question. Yeah, well, um, yes, we, uh, we jumped at the opportunity because this is what LitFund does. Uh, our target market and our portfolio consists of 68% uh, of those of low to moderate income backgrounds. Uh, we've serviced the population since 1994 and since the inception of LitFund. And uh, it, it was an opportunity to continue our mission and to help those of need and uh, help, help close the wealth gap, which we believe is through entrepreneurship. That's why we did it. So we've talked about why you wanted to be a part of this. We, we'd also like to hear, because and Cullum has mentioned this, we'd like to hear from you, what are some of the challenges you've experienced uh, either being a part of the collaborative or Becky as, as being a, one of the uh, one of the anchor institutions in one of the three neighborhoods with DCEV. What what type of challenges have you experienced? I'll jump in. Um, you know, I, and I know I'm saying things that everybody knows, but this work takes time. Um, and there are a lot of different partners and players and elements to make it work. Um, and it's hard to build these program tools to be helpful and context specific, while at the same time um, having to be quick on our feet and, and essentially compete um, in a neighborhood where there is rapid speculation occurring. And so these are all things we sometimes feel like we're building the plane and flying it too. Um, and really thankful that Trek is flexible um, and nimble with us. And, you know, Shanika, you can feel her passion in the trenches through her emails and through the way she's reached our folks. So um, I think that the need to be flexible um, as, as we build tools that are effective um, in, in contexts that continue to change. I know for me, um, is it my turn? Okay. I know for me, one of the challenges is conventional community outreach is face-to-face, -face, it's relational. So with the pandemic, trying to transfer that relationship, and thank you, Becky, for acknowledging, you know, the, the flavor I bring in community outreach uh, in a virtual environment has been a challenge. But I think it's rooted in what Colum said, Colum said about consistency and building trust. And so my first objective when I was hired, thank you, DSET, thank you, Dallas College, for having the wisdom to have someone that is invested in the communities and represent the communities to also bridge that gap. I wanted to build consistency with the anchor institution. So every other week, whether they wanted to see me or not, I was present in my virtual meeting space and whatever they needed, I had to kind of be flexible about how I could present that. And thank you, St. Phyllis, for always extending an invitation for me to come into your community meetings and get put some fire under your community members about what Dallas College has to offer. We've had to be creative and we've had to kind of like what Becky said, having the plane and flying it too. 
um, things that we wouldn't normally do, we're willing to do uh, to reach everyone. And what I would do for St. Phillips will probably look different for Golden Seeds and that's okay. So flexibility has definitely been something I have uh, enhanced that skill <laughs> and been creative with that. But the challenge uh, has been trying to maintain relationships, build trust in a virtual space, especially when you have digital divides. Uh, the reality of the matter is in the bottom, my, my home neighborhood of Oak Cliff, the digital network is not that great. You know, it's a challenge to even conduct a meeting in a virtual space in the bottom. So just imagine those community members trying to log in. Uh, the shining light is you have community partners who are very invested in their membership. Golden Seeds were one of them. They were the leaders in helping me recruit individuals for a workforce program. And in their small meeting space, they had their community members share computers because they knew their internet was solid. And they did that as a collective effort. And so when you have uh, these challenges, but you have partners that's willing to also pivot with us and go along for the ride, it's not, it's not so bad, but it will take some time because of those, those roadblocks. Um, for Lifon, uh, as far as lending, well, I'd say it's, it's just awareness of the program. Uh, we, you know, we don't, we don't have commercials on TV. Um, you know, maybe we're on social media, but Shanika just touched on it. You know, in these areas, it's access to technology, right? Uh, being difficult. So, um, uh, but but even then, people don't even know what a CDFI is and, and what we do. Therefore, <clears throat> we're relying on word of mouth is what we're relying on. And uh, it's through us, the community partners, uh, but awareness is, uh, is key to any program that helps the community. So the small amount of applicants that we do find, uh, unfortunately, we, we are running into problems that are out of our control. And it, it, it believe it or not, has nothing to do with credit. Um, uh, an example I can give you, um, uh, not filing taxes in the last three years, uh, commingling funds in business and personal, um, even uh, business certifications, LLC incorporated, uh, a simple DBA not filed properly or not at all. So these are three examples is why, why Lift Fund actually provides business education uh, with funding, because as you can see, it's not all about money but how to properly run your business. Um, believe it or not, there, there are a lot of businesses out there that are openly running their business. However, they're conducting business in, in the shadows. Uh, so it's kind of up to us to, to kind of get out there, but word of mouth awareness is key for this, for sure. Okay. So Becky, I have a specific question for you as it relates to housing and developing housing. Uh, we all know uh, that affordable housing is extremely complex. So how is St. Phillips approaching the development process so that uh, you're not just building something, but rather creating a place that people can call home? And in addition to that, what kind of housing is needed or desired in the Forest District? That's a good question. Um, so we're... We're guided by the central notion that this is already a place that people call home and it's a strong community. Um, so for us, the approach, the key is really to listen um, and to engage our neighbors and to realize that 
you know, scattered infill or a new development um, don't create community necessarily. That community is made block by block and relationship by relationship. So if you're neglecting, you know, every other neighbor on that block, you aren't community building. And so it's why for us, the minor home repair program in tandem with the development of new affordable housing is just central to our strategy and why um, we deeply value and, and lead with um, really alongside every other community organization that's in this collaborative with our longtime relationship with people and families in the neighborhoods through, you know, St. Phillips's other initiatives, Cornerstone's other, other initiatives, Force Forward's other initiatives. So we really think um, the way that DCD comes alongside longtime neighborhood organizations is, is wise to use Shanika's word because you're entrusting longtime stewards of community trust to be in the trenches doing the work. Um, and we've seen that pay dividends really in terms of that trust that Colm talked about. Um, the second part of your question was about design or, or the kinds of housing needed. Yeah, yeah, what type of housing is needed or desired in, in the forest district? So every, yeah, I mean, every neighborhood is different. And even in the forest district, interestingly enough, is actually comprised of three different neighborhoods. Um, so specifically in the St. Phillips neighborhood, which is majority single family, we see a need for affordable single family infill and then um, creative ways to use the long skinny lots in the neighborhood. So we have folks that own their home and say, um, have interest in having something in back of their home um, where they could be making money, for example, um, or housing somebody or housing mom. Um, and perhaps even some small multifamily, which we really think is going to help serve that 30% AMI income level. Um, and we see a need for that too. Okay. So Shanika, Dallas College, which half a mile away from the Forest District, uh, at least the Bill J. Priest uh, facility. Tell us how Dallas College has changed the way that they do business through DCED. And so I guess another way of putting it is, uh, what is Dallas College doing to connect community members to meaningful job training and small business opportunities? Well, I, I can be honest. Dallas College uh, is a leader in education. So we, we know that. Everyone knows that. Um, but they are definitely, they were definitely used to uh, a, a credit student coming up to the door and saying, I know exactly what I want. And the wisdom of um, identifying me as a community outreach manager is I can, I can say um, to all of the community members that we have to meet them where they're at. And you can't meet them where they're at in a box. And so the wisdom of the whole concept of a collaborative is me saying, how can I meet individuals for them to learn about the opportunities? A lot of times uh, when we speak of logistics, for instance, a lot of community members didn't even know what logistics was, even though they utilize uh, that from day to day. And so I created an informal way. I call it um, a powwow session, a dream session, where I invite community members to come into a virtual space. And not only do I present what workforce uh, eligibility requirements are, but I highlight uh, different programs that we have that's of course connected to employment for a livable wage, because we don't wanna just check off a box and give them training. We wanna connect them to employment, but we talk about what logistics is. We talk about construction and maintenance and what kind of examples of, of jobs you can get in construction and maintenance. One of the highlights has been a virtual telehealth program that has recently started with a great partnership. 
I literally sat in a virtual space and said, okay, this is what is available and this is what it looks like, you know, and how can we relate it? And so I normally address the who, what, when, and where, because the reality is they have to still live life. They have to still earn an income. They have to still be responsible for their household. So we have to be sensitive to that. So I normally come to the table saying, this is a temporary uh, sacrifice for a long-term investment. And this commitment may look five weeks, Monday through Thursday at night. Do you think this is a good fit? I won't assume it's a good fit for the community member. I'm gonna have a conversation with them and say, now, this is what this looks like. Is this something that would work for you? Because I want them to be ready. I don't want them to just show up for orientation and start. I want them to start and finish. And so that's something that hasn't always been done in the Dallas College world uh, for continuing education, giving that information up front. But normally when I give that information up front and they select what they want, they're ready to get started. And I think that's something different that hasn't been introduced before. And how I would speak with community members from St. Phillips in a community meeting may be more best suited for those individuals versus someone, for instance, Golden Seeds that will probably engage with their people during a newsletter. Um, and then I've had to be created with Builders of Hope and who is a community outreach uh, leadership team for Builders of Hope she has a one-on-one -on -one pers uh, personality where she goes from door to door and introduces the program. And so everyone's lane is different. When you think about Cornerstone, Cornerstone has invited me to the table to have conversations about uh, put, putting in the culinary program, a starter program in their, in their backyard because we know transportation can be an issue, but it doesn't stop there. When we can have conversations where it can bridge the gap to, for them to go higher and thrive and elevate, that's kind of what I like to be a part of, not just what's immediate in front of us. So Dallas College is really being creative and having these conversations and customizing their workforce engagement and their small business support um, to ensure that everyone needs are being met in the way they need to be met because we want them to come and be ready. And we also now, want to support them. Now, speaking of small business support, and I've had numerous discussions with Michelle Thomas about entrepreneurship in South Dallas and empowering these entrepreneurs. So when they come to Dallas College and they're able to get small business services, I mean, give us an example of someone who's had an opportunity to uh, take advantage of some of the services under DCED. I'm gonna speak the praises of a St. Phyllis referral, the Hamiltons, I call them the Hamiltons. They were a referral from St. Phillips who uh, were invested in enhancing their business. They, are, they were doing quite well. It's called, it's called About the Kids Incorporation. It's a mentoring program and they have particular uh, engagement opportunities at all of the local recreation centers in Dallas. Uh, particularly, they do mentorships, they do job assistance, they do all of those apprenticeship opportunities. And it's a husband and wife team with their son who is the CEO, it's the, it's the junior Hamilton. Uh, so I always sing their praises because they are definitely investing in South Dallas. They live in South Dallas. They raise their, kids in, raise their kids in South Dallas. And so when you have individuals who live and have thrived and have those relationships with St. Phillips, when St. Phillips advocated for us to bridge the gap and for them to talk, talk with Dallas College, 
it was a win. We had already won 50% of their trust. And so now when I had a conversation with them recently, I stated, if you could uh, dream and have a, 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 a dream about what you would want because of our relationship, our partnership, they had two simple things. They said, we would love to have an office space to conduct business for our outreach efforts for our nonprofit. And then we would like to have a van to be able to transport individuals to their activities for their mentorship program. Now for us, we'd be like, oh, that's a quick fix. But for them, that is their win. And so I think we have to be very mindful of implying what we think they want and, and have a conversation deeper than just funding. Kind of like what Isaac said, you know, we have to talk with them to pull out what their success measurement is. And I think D said does a great job at having those conversations. Okay, thank you, Shanika. Well, unfortunately we've run out of time for the panel. Uh, but I'd like to open it up. If you have a question to please put it in the chat, uh, we're going to open it up to, to, uh, uh, to everyone that's, that's on, on, on the webinar. Uh, and while we're doing that, uh, I, I have a, a few questions that came in earlier. Um, so uh, Isaac, here's a question for you. Tell us about the, the loan program, the DCED loan program, and what makes it different from your regular loan programs? Um. Okay, well, the difference from uh, uh, other loan programs uh, is for this particular loan program, you can actually uh, qualify to defer the loan up to six months, anywhere from two to six months. That's very unique. We actually don't do that on any of the other programs. Uh, and that's a big help too, pushing uh, these types of payments back. It gives you a little breathing room. Uh, also, um, our interest rate, uh, you, you qualify as low as 4%. Again, it's, uh, they're, they're not automatically available on other programs. Another difference is that uh, these microloans are, are given a second and third, third look, which is uh, likelihood the loan can get passed. So this is going beyond the underwriting guidelines. Uh, so again, very unique to this program, so. Okay, and one more question. Um, Shanika, um, and uh, if we can do this quickly, uh, which workforce training program or community members most interested in? Right now, uh, it changes depending on, honestly, the community. Uh, for instance, what I've learned with South Dallas, when I'm speaking with individuals, they're really interested in hands-on, you know, creating a product. So I have a lot of people who are interested in construction and maintenance, logistics, things of that nature. But then when you go to West Dallas, believe it or not, individuals are interested in um, administrative type, office specialists, virtual telehealth. Uh, Golden Seas at, at a certain point, they were very interested in entrepreneurship transitions, which is why I pushed that program last summer because we had a large in, uh, population out of Golden Seas that says, hey, I have a great small business idea. Someone told me I should open my own small business. and entrepreneurship transitions was Dallas College answer today. So it depends on the community, honestly. Okay. And we see, we have a hands up from Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson. Uh, uh, Celeste, if you can turn on her video and unmute her. Welcome, we're, we're so glad you joined us today. 
Okay, well, thank you very much. This has been very, very informative. Uh, and I wanna thank everyone involved and especially um, um, Cullum Clark uh, with that background information, but all of you are so appreciated. It has been extraordinarily frustrating to me not to know what is going on, if anything is going on in the community. Uh, I, I, obviously, all of these initiatives have to start locally. I can be of help when I know what to do. Uh, I most recently had the hearing below 30 lending. I recently did a tour of the Fair Park area and I've been in touch when people have gotten in touch with me. You have no idea what a great breath of fresh air you are because all initiatives start locally. I can be of help when I know what to do and how it's coordinated. The Brownfield Fund just helped the St. Phillips, which I started uh, through my committee and helped all of downtown. Well, I, I work a lot with Michael Morris uh, in the call and get a lot of guidance uh, from him. But I want you to understand that I am here to do what I can. I'm very grateful to know that the Bush uh, School is involved. I have great confidence that you'll be of great assistance and all the rest of you as well. Nothing is more important to me uh, than the city of Dallas and what is going on. We have had great attitudes of our leaders, leaders that, of money, that are willing to join forces and help when they know what to help with. And so to see that you are taking the time to do the homework and pulling things together is that good news to me. So let me thank all of you. We're honored to have you on on the call, Representative Johnson, and thank you, thank you so much. And uh, any way we can support you in terms of getting uh, services and 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 capital and and whatever is needed in this community, you you can call on us. So so thank you. Well, thank you. Now I don't need it. You are the ones who need it. I need to be following and supporting you. So keep in touch and keep me informed and I'll do what I can. Okay, we'll do so, thank you. Now, Celeste, do we have any more questions on, on, on the webinar? We, we do, we have um, a question. It's, if Dallas were to change all single family zoning to allow single family, as well as duplexes and triplexes, would this get us farther along in increasing available housing? It would seem that duplexes in particular can really uh, move the needle, but there's so much neighborhood opposition against anything other than single family homes. And I believe that may be a question for um, Dr. Clark or, or for Becky or, or Felicia. This, uh, Becky, unless you would rather go first. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I have an opinion on this. It's, it's uh, presented in other groups. Sometimes it's been a little controversial. Um, let me start by saying I uh, ardently believe we need lots more housing supply 
all up and down the price spectrum, including lots more affordable housing supply in Dallas, all over our city, in neighborhoods, all, all over. Uh, so I'm sympathetic to the uh, intentions behind a measure of this, of this kind. However, I'm not enthusiastic about a blanket uh, plan to um, overturn single family housing um, all over the city for the, for the, for the following simple reason. Um, and that is that there's a lot of lower income residents in our city who live in single family homes. Um, and if you make it economically viable to buy up those homes and turn them into, uh, let's say more luxury multifamily, whether duplex or whatever it is, or larger, greater density, um, the net result may actually be a decline in the volume of total um, affordable housing, not an increase. And uh, that's, of course, a theoretical proposition. But in the city of Minneapolis, they, in fact, have tried exactly this measure. A lot of people like the measure in theory. But I was part of a panel with a woman who was an expert in Minneapolis working full time in the affordable housing space who said it's worked out exactly as I feared it would. Uh, and highly recommended that other cities not follow that. So I think there are much better ways to get a lot more housing supply, such as dramatically easing the, um, the development process in our city, which is cumbersome and way too difficult, as my friends at Trek have again and again helped me to understand. Um, uh, zoning change for sure, but probably with a little bit more of a scalpel rather than a, um, a, a sledgehammer. Uh, and the full panoply the full toolkit of affordable affordable housing tools some of which we are using in this in this in in DCED but there are a great many tools available to the public sector uh, some of which we use in Dallas others not entirely yet uh, so there's a lot of other better ways Becky love to hear from you I really like Colin's sensitivity from a policy standpoint because Colin, we usually hear, um, we usually are the ones providing that balance to a, a really cool sounding policy, um, which, which frankly, I understand the question and I understand the heart behind the question. I think in practice, um, in our community, you see a lot of duplexes, you see a lot of, frankly, ADUs, granny flats, even though they're not on DCAD. Um, so there, there is flexible housing typology. People need it, people use it. Um, but then where the rubber meets the road is, what does that actually look like on the ground from a policy standpoint? And how does the policy advance the cause, not hurt the cause? And I think Colin um, spoke really well into that. One thing we're doing um, just on the ground from a duplex perspective is um, selling them by meets and bounds over the course of the next year. And the, the shared part of the duplex is going to actually be the um, a roof or a breezeway between them. So making sure that people still have that single family experience, but are then able to live in duplex. It's a smart way to use the lots. Now we have the unusual situation where in our neighborhood, most of the lots are zoned multifamily, um, which is scary too, because to your point, column, someone can come in, bulldoze it. If they can collect enough lots, there can be massive displacement. But um, so, Colm, I would love to hear from a policy standpoint, like what is the smart solution to that that gives that housing typology flexibility um, with the sensitivity that you described? Ooh, that's a big topic. I'm not sure we're going to resolve it in the next uh, minute or two, but thanks. Becky, you and I should talk offline with anyone else who wants to get together and talk about it. Um, look, I think that uh, some places are doing a lot better job than others at actually getting the housing supply response that the actual, like, you know, houses on the ground getting built than we than uh, than others. 
Um, the city of Dallas is not doing as well as we uh, should hope. Uh, other parts of the metro area doing better. Um, uh, you know, I think the low in, in our particular case, I think I already referred to the low hanging fruit. Uh, our development process is impossible. Uh, we're supposedly in a very, uh, you know, um, pro-business, economically economic freedom oriented uh, state. Uh, we pride ourselves in that entrepreneurial and so forth. Uh, we should figure out how to how to unleash entrepreneurship in our city in the housing space uh, rather than bottling it up to the effect that we have. Uh, when you talk about, uh, uh, you know, zoning as such, it's a complex uh, matter rife with unintended consequences that potentially might happen. Um, I think that uh, in, 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 in practice, there's a lot of areas of the city that could easily absorb greater housing density than exists already, or in some cases there is no housing there, i.e. it's a defunct strip mall or something of that nature. Uh, so when I say scalpel, I mean geographically targeted. I think the city has to get a lot smarter about what it wants where um, uh, and needs to develop the uh, the tools. It has a lot of really, really brilliant uh, staff people who I think understand this and they need to be uh, kind of empowered with the policy tools to identify locations and, you know, cut the deal with the developer, as it were, and figure out how the public capital is going to come in alongside the private capital in a particular place where it is viable to create considerably greater uh, density. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not super experienced at, at using all those tools in the city of Dallas. So a lot of it's, you know, hard work ahead. But I know that Trek, for example, has been uh, a leading policy voice again and again at Dallas City Hall, pointing out kind of what needs to be done. So keep up the good work, Felicia and Linda and team. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to as well, as I know, Becky, you and uh, St. Phillips and all of your, your, um, your allies there will as well. Okay, and we have time for one last question, one quick question. This is di uh, directed towards you, Colin. Yep. Um, the, 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 uh, the question says, do you believe uh, that mixed income housing communities with small businesses intermixed will be a more viable and sustainable solution than just focusing on affordable housing? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. It's, it's a question that DCED is putting to the test, okay, because it is very much DCED's intention to, to its great credit. I think there is a widespread understanding in America today that um, when we create um, concentrations of low-income residents, uh, essentially ev everybody is relatively low-income, and by the way, it's just residential, which is to say any available jobs might actually be quite far away. When we create that place, that place does not thrive. That is not good for the residents who live there. We know that. Um, that's, that's, that's pretty, um, I think the, the case is, uh, is, is closed on that. Um, what's not uh, clear, okay, is the question went to sustainability. And what's not clear is is how you arrive at this, this mixed income. I would say also a mixed race should, I, should be a, something we aspire to in our, in our society with all of its tragic history. Um, uh, and, uh, and also mixed use in the sense of lots of different activities happening in close proximity to each other. Uh, we should aspire to all that. Now, um, uh, in, in, in our work at the Bush Institute and SMU, I've oftentimes quoted Jane Jacobs, who was arguably the, the, the most respected writer on American cities ever. And she wrote a famous book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, 1961, just as relevant 50 years later as it was then. Uh, and she said, we have this problem that we need to overcome. 
and we need and we're trying to overcome it in these three neighborhoods. Thank you, thanks to you all. Um, and the problem is that what tends to happen in a neighborhood is either no capital comes in at all, or what she calls a catastrophic flood of capital uh, uh, rolls in and wipes everything before it. Uh, and it's and it's one or the other all too often, and that's that's a failure. We can't have that 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 binary the, that binary set of choices can't be the only possible outcome in Dallas or in our cities in America in general. Um, but I would argue, having been in the private sector a long time, there is a natural force in the in the in the private market that essentially either a certain kind of deal works in a neighborhood or it doesn't. And if it works, there's basically no end to the capital that will come in and do that deal. Um, and that results in oftentimes in a not so good uh, outcome for the people who were already there. So what it, so it does take market forces, private capital coming in, but it also does take an intelligent role for, um, for, for local government uh, to try to set the conditions for local investment in a place uh, and try to create space in which the people who were already there and the residences that were already there and so forth can survive while new capital comes in. That's a hard thing, but there are efforts afoot to do it. There's uh, the last two, two sessions of the state legislature. There have been bills uh, that would create, for example, property tax freezes for people who were already there in a particular neighborhood for a, for a time, for an extended time. That could stabilize things. So there's ideas afoot. And I also think that, that, that there's an, another, one last thing I'll say, I'm, you know, I'm being a little bit wordy, but about the DCED in particular, I think there's also a critical role for nonprofit organizations like St. Phillips, like Trek, like all of the eight organizations involved in this intervention, because uh, public sector can't do it alone. And, and, and nonprofit players can also help to, in effect, dictate or help to shape the way development proceeds in a neighborhood. Um, they can do it by buying up land directly, as uh, various of the uh, players, the partners in the DCED are doing. Uh, by mobilizing the community, you know, once they have the trust of the community, that's kind of a powerful thing. Um, and so I think that if, uh, so when I really hats off to all the organizations that are involved and, and I just say, you know, hats off to Felicia, to you and uh, uh, to um, Ms. Post and Ms. Frazier and Mr. Elizondo and uh, all, of the, all of the many people in the organizations who are working on this, because I think there really is this core conviction that the nonprofit sector backed by significant capital in this case from a visionary large, large, great American company um, can shape this outcome. And it doesn't have to be the binary either or. It actually can, we can arrive at a better place uh, through a whole lot of hard work. So I think that, that without that optimism, we're kind of uh, done for, you know, things won't go well. Uh, but with, um, with organizations like you all, uh, um, you know, as, you, as, as Becky, Becky said, you know, doing the hard work over a sustained period of time, I think there is, uh, you know, the nonprofit sector can actually make a significant difference that way. Well, and that closes out our Q&A for today. Uh, Cullum, Becky, Isaac, Shanika, I thank you so much for being a part of this today. Uh, again, this is kind of, and then Cullum, you know, you eloquently uh, spoke to this. This is why collaboration is so important. So we have an equitable development plan. Uh, the residents and the, the anchor institutions have said, this is what's important to the community. And we have the organizations that can develop, uh, deliver some of those resources, but the, the public-private partnerships are just as key. And so everyone playing a role in supporting these communities is really, really important. So we want to thank everyone that was a part of the, the panel and the Q&A. 
and then we're getting close to our, our end time. So what we want to do is short uh, for if you can qu quickly tell them, just talk about what's what's next. Sure. Um, my so yeah, good. Um, yeah, what's next? So of course the program will go on for the next uh, at least year and a half, uh, roughly, uh, and uh, we'll uh, do everything it's, the DCED will do, move heaven and earth to accomplish its goals. I know, and uh, what um, what we will be doing on our side. Uh, so um, the Bush Institute and SMU are really honored to be part of this, playing this evaluation role. And what uh, it's been really a pleasure over the last few months is um, uh, I've had the opportunity to put together a team of SMU um, researchers, faculty, and graduate students who are doing a kind of a deep data dive into uh, the three neighborhoods. We're also, by the way, collecting data on a number of uh, sort of peer neighborhoods uh, so that we can, uh, the DCED is not exactly a controlled experiment, but we can kind of analyze results on a sort of as if it were a quasi-controlled experiment, seeing what happens in other neighborhoods as well. But the important point is this, uh, we're assembling, uh, we have assembled, I think, a team of people who are very good on the data side with two major goals that will go into the next two white papers, which we'll, have, we'll report to you all on in 2022 and 2023. Um, one big goal is to, is to understand the social and economic realities of the three neighborhoods uh, even better than we already do, uh, really using quantitative tools, and that will, will figure in our subsequent uh, work. Look forward to reporting on that. And second of all, is to really try to understand as we approach the end of this intervention, um, better even than we have done hopefully so far, uh, what's happened, how's it all worked out, and what are the takeaways for um, you know the rest of Dallas, but for cities everywhere? What are the takeaways for all the, all the future pro-neighborhoods uh, grantees and other efforts all over the United States? So we, we wanna be a part of that discussion because I think something really important is happening here in Dallas with DCED uh, and uh, the rest of the uh, world in effect, or at least that, that part of the world that cares about these issues uh, ought to hear about it. So that's that's what we're going to do in, in white papers that we will uh, that we will write in 2022 and three. And in the meantime, we will uh, uh, wish DCED every success in um, accomplishing its goals and uh, getting on with this great work in 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 within our city. All right, Cullum, thank you very much. So we couldn't close the program without hearing from uh, the president and CEO of the Real Estate Council, Linda McMahon. Linda. Thank you so much, Felicia. And I am so excited that we ended the program with such enthusiasm from Colm Clark. Colm, uh, thank you for everything you've been doing and guiding us in this work as we're doing it through Pro Neighborhoods. Uh, the partnership with the Bush Institute is invaluable. It really elevates our work and we thank you so much for all your attention to it and also bringing all the research you've been doing before this work to our work, which we really appreciate. I cannot thank Isaac, Becky, and Shanika enough. Uh, you are the ones, as well as several of you on, the, on this webinar, that have participated in what we consider to be the most important part of this, and that is meeting people where they are. The grassroots efforts that we are engaged in, in these communities with the people who live there, in their neighborhoods is more important than anything. The building of trust is so important and we're so excited that we are building those relationships with the people who live there and they're benefiting from it through the institutions like Dallas College, like Live Fund, through St. Phillips, Golden Seeds, Builders of Hope, Forest Forward, 
and of course Cornerstone Baptist Church. We we appreciate all the all all the work that you all are doing in the community to benefit your community. We at Trek have been engaged in this work for over 25 years. And we have been engaged in community building for over 25 years. And we understand the value of these relationships, but we still have so much more to learn. And we're excited about the opportunity to continue to learn through this effort with PRO, excited to learn about what we need to do as a city and a community. But let's not be mistaken. This is hard work. It takes time. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. And our community, our families need us now. And every day that we lack a sense of urgency in our work leaves one more child behind, leaves one more family, uh, their future dedicated or actually decided by the zip code that they live in. And we cannot let that happen anymore. So we encourage you to continue to join us in our work. We are here to continue the work. And we're so excited to be able to partner with J.P. Morgan Chase and all the other people that work with us. We need more money. We need more. Uh, we we need more uh, power. And we are super proud of our members, over 2,000 Trek members, who are the fuel to the fire of the work that we do in the community. We are not going to stop. So thanks for joining us, and we appreciate everything you do. Have a great afternoon. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. And if you're interested in learning more about DCED, please contact me or Celestial Valdez. Our information is on the slide. Everyone have a good afternoon. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank our moderator, Felicia Pearson, as well as our panelists, Colm Clark, Shanika Frazier, Isaac Elizondo, and Becky Post for their insights on the first year of the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development. Make sure to subscribe to TrackCast to get all new episodes and follow us on social media for the latest from around the organization. Again, all of those links are in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.